ora. You are listening to the Vet Thrive Collective Podcast. My name is Megan Alderson and I'm a well-being advocate for the veterinary profession and everybody within it. Join me on a global journey finding a collective of well-being innovators and thought leaders sowing seeds of change to bring our industry into a place where we can be happy, healthy, flourish and thrive. Who needs leadership skills? Turns out we all do. This is one of the podcasts you need to listen to thrice. Taking the bull by the horns, master storyteller, trainer, small business advocate and industry champion, Paul Ainsworth is the leader of the leaders and a change maker well worth listening to. Helping to build connection with our team members, building a culture of acknowledgement and appreciation and teaching us by simply advocating for the patient, we can create strong and robust businesses. Leadership brings with it obligation and we can only go so far on our own. Kia ora. This is the Vet Thrive Collective Podcast, and we're going to be talking to Paul Ainsworth today, leader of the leaders. Paul's here today to talk about how high-performing teams can be something that you can bring into every practice and what that means to the well-being of the leaders as well as the people that follow them. So welcome, Paul, and let's start the show. You telling me a little bit about yourself. I'm always really interested in our whakapapa and our taringa waiwai, which in New Zealand means, you know, where you come from and the people that influence you throughout your life. Sure. Kia ora, everybody. And thanks, Megan. It's great to be talking with you. So, look, my background is I'm actually born in the UK originally. Came out as a, I think it was 10 pound POM back in the day. So, my family, the entire catastrophe, moved to Australia in one go. And I've lived in various parts of Australia all my life. My career, I guess, started with the military, as you know. I spent a number of years in the infantry, went through the officer training school in Canberra, Duntroon. And uh, I spent about 15 years or so in the military, did a small stint overseas in the Middle East, which was my final posting, and then moved into the corporate sector and uh, had various roles, eventually running my own business down in Melbourne and living in Sydney. So commuting Monday to Friday, which is pretty tough on the family. And Mm. as part of that, I employed a number of people and one of them played squash with a veterinarian. So this ah, is, so the vet connection. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so it wasn't your deep love of animals that just drove it. It was basically the deep love of veterinarians. I grew up on, on a property, so I do have a, a great love of animals. I've always grown up with cats and dogs around me, so our family were big fans of those. But I never really understood what a veterinarian did. I thought a vet was a vet and a nurse, and the nurse doubled up as a reception person. And, uh, you know, there was a door that went out the back, and I had no idea what went on. I didn't have that much exposure to veterinarians, if I'm honest, uh, until uh, my employee said to me, one of, one of my team said, hey, boss, would you mind going and talking to a group of veterinarians up at a conference that they're holding? It's the final day of the conference. Their speakers dropped out and uh, they're a bit concerned how they're going to fill a couple of hours. And I've, uh, he played squash with the convener the night before and he'd already committed me to do it. <laughs> and I, I said, what am I going to talk to them about? I don't know anything about veterinary. And he said, no, just tell them some of your war stories. And I said, they're not that interesting to people, are they? And he said, no, no, they're they're really cool. Just go and have a chat to them. So I said, okay, all right. So I went up and there was 24 people in the room and three of those people are now my business partners. And almost everyone in the room I worked with for a number of years closed down my business, well, sold it and, and decided to focus on 
delivering training, worked with some corporates for a while, didn't really like that so much, only because the people that I was working with weren't really the decision makers in business. I have a real affinity with small business owners and understanding the numbers and and some of the hardship associated with running a business, having run a couple of small businesses myself. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up working with veterinarians. And I think that's really important when you're teaching or leading people that you actually understand or have been able to step into their shoes. So I guess for me, knowing that you actually, you've done the hard yards and I know the military has installed in you um, structure, which is something that I've yet to learn, <laughs> but the structure and then moving on through small business and knowing how, what that leader is to all those people because it's it's everything you know that those different hats that we wear on a daily basis especially as veterinarians because how many of the leaders or the business owners still work within the clinic so that's a very common thing for veterinarians mm-hmm. you know one thing about your leadership style is the trust kindness and compassion so that compassion really came through for me when I met you and you were talking about your time in United Nations as a military observer and some of those moments that really created your why and the person that you became after that so those trust kindness and compassion that we all have as veterinarians I believe and a lot of veterinary business owners have it then we lose it because it's just too hard so what does leadership bring to this journey for us and we talk about the wider profession the veterinary professionals that we work under with the vet techs vet nurses front of house opportunities so as we work as a team what does leadership bring to us as far as well-being is concerned Look, I think a couple of things. The first thing I'd probably point out to your listeners is I wasn't entirely convinced that the military overlay had any that much relevance. And until I stepped out and started working with, look, I'm going to say civilians, I've been out longer than I was serving, but there is a real overlay of skills. So the basic learnings that I got as, a, as an army officer, and probably I'm going to say particularly as a young army officer where I was placed in situations often where the people around me were way more experienced than I was. When I graduated, I was I had two pips. I think I was 22 and a half when I graduated. So 22 and a half is very young to come into a battalion where the average soldier is, I don't know, say 25. The average non-commissioned officer, lance corporal, sergeant, they're in their 30s. The warrant officers are 40-something, and you come out and you're as green as anything. One of the things that struck me most was what is your role as a leader and what does leadership bring with it? I'm going to say it brings obligation and Mm. it brings hard work. Many organisations think that the leadership path or or the point at which you become a leader is a point of promotion. And it's entities because it comes with more responsibilities, therefore it comes with more pay. And obviously, as you get more experienced, you want to move into a leadership role where you can take on more. But I think a lot of people don't place enough emphasis on what are the competencies that we need in our senior people? And do they have those competencies? Can you possibly teach them? And as you know, through our training together, that there is definitely skill and knowledge. And let me point to something that's probably more relevant to your listeners, and that is a very senior surgeon. There's a lot of skill there. There's a huge amount of knowledge. But there are two other components that I think are really important to consider, and it's attitude and aptitude. 
And if I think about what's the attitude and aptitude required of somebody who is doing surgical work after now working with veterinarians for 11 years, I feel like I've got a good cross-section of what that looks like. But I also understand what's required of a leader, and often they don't have it. Yeah, and I think that's dangerous, right? And how does that flow down? Well, they end up in these leadership roles where they're actually just no good at it. They don't care enough. If I think of one particular group I'm working with, obviously will be nameless, but the most senior person there is terrible, like yeah. toxic. And it, of course, owns the business. So, you know, they've got a right. And But what they should be doing is developing self-awareness around that, which of course is a really important leadership quality, because we do lack so much self-awareness. I really have no clue how I'm coming across now. I'm probably, if you look at the research, I'm probably only 40% accurate as to how this presentation's going. I've probably said words <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to say. So people will be forming an impression without even being able to see me. So, you know, how all that works. But developing some self-awareness around the fact that, you know what, I probably don't have enough empathy. I really struggle to suspend judgment. I think this is the way the world ticks and everybody should just fall into line. And, you know, that empathy, which is this sort of, really important quality of leaders, particularly, as you say, as you point out, Megan, in terms of mental health and well-being of people or mental ill health, I should say, and well-being of people, it's important to be able to drive connection. And I'm quoting Susan David here. And if you're not listening to Susan David, she's a wonderful podcaster as well as you, Megan, um, just really bringing great <laughs> topics to life. But she talks about how empathy drives connection and sympathy drives disconnection because sympathy is me just basically looking at you going, oh, life must be hell for you on, on that side of the fence. You know, I'm on this yeah. side of the fence, you're on that side of the fence, and I feel really sorry for you versus an empathic response, which is, and Susan David's, I'm pretty sure it's Susan David talks about the fact that you should jump the fence and sit on the other side of the fence with this person, which means that you need to suspend your own view of how the world ticks for a few minutes and sit with people. And, and that I really learnt that the hard way in southern Lebanon. If I go back to the military, yeah. and you, you talked earlier about how did the military help me develop some of these things. Sitting with people who were really suffering from a great deal of oppression, who, who really just wanted a UN vehicle parked outside their house just for half an hour so that they felt safe funny story i was with a i was with a dutch guy this huge guy and who's a dutch special forces and we were we were just on a routine patrol in lebanon and we stopped off at a house and the guy scurried down his ladder he was fixing his pergola and he and um, this pergola sounds like it was a fancy house it certainly wasn't and he scurried down his ladder and invited us in waved us in we had very little arabic and he had very little english but we sat down we managed to communicate we sat on these tiny little stools right so i'm six foot two this guy's about six foot five six foot six he sits down on these tiny <laughs> stools ridiculous i don't know how the stool didn't collapse under him and uh, they brought out the tea, which was in this beautiful tray and it was beautifully presented. And as the tray was being put down, that's probably not even a funny story now I think about it, but he crossed his legs and, uh, and he booted the tray. And it oh, no. just, just flew. <laughs> and the guy caught the tray. I don't think anything broke. We obviously would have paid for it if it had. It was just very funny. But just spending time with those people and suspending yes. any view I had of my own comparative wealth, which was ridiculous when you compare the two, it, right up to working with armed elements and Hezbollah and, and the Israelis. And there were certainly situations where they made my life difficult. But I really had to suspend any view I had of what I thought about what they were doing, 
and just report very objectively. Yeah. Often if there was something happening militarily, I didn't want it. Everyone listens to everyone's radio transmissions. I would report it 24 hours later just so that it wouldn't interfere despite the fact that I wanted to interfere sometimes. I didn't have the authority to do that. My mandate wasn't that. I learned at that time the importance of being this servant leadership. My role is to support my team. That means I need to encourage their growth and development, take a step back from micromanaging because that doesn't develop anyone. That just keeps reinforcing the fact that these people can't think for themselves. And create overwhelm for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah you just take on so many. Like, it's difficult conversations or what, mm. what I prefer to call confident. Go into a confident conversation not knowing the outcome. Yeah. Like just you don't have to carry that weight as a leader. I don't think. You, you've got to know your standards and your values and got to set those expectations with everybody. But yeah. And I think just with that story you just told is pretty much aligns with what we do every day as veterinarians. We walk into that room with that person, making decisions, then creating a plan. And again, it takes those sort of qualities of like guidance, but also I call it equanimity, which is that ability to be with that person, just as you said, but not really take everything on board because like they're there and that's their animal and I'm you know, helping out. I'm a resource. So again, like your journey sounds very similar to what we, I know it's obviously not war zones, but what we do on a daily basis. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Conflicts and probably another topic just all in itself, isn't it? Can I I share you with a war zone is a lot more boring than a veterinary hospital. Yeah, that's true. It's a pretty action-packed place. Yeah, Yeah, under any illusion. Yeah. Building leadership. And let's just um, preface that, that, you know, leadership can be a new graduate leading other new graduates, correct? It could be a veterinary nurse sort of leading a nursing team. It could be leadership being clinical director, just learning this, the steps. And mm. I talk a lot about as Maslow's motivational model in my Vet Thrive program. And, and you know, what, I, what that's all about is actually building basic needs, okay? Just mm. having that foundational layer so that we can actually go to work and enjoy our work. But then the next level up is that autonomy and the mastery that we talked about actually with Alex Walker is how do we create better we want to be better but the next level up from that is how do we lead people and have career progression but also leadership to me is as you said self-awareness and then also the big word that everyone likes out there is appreciation (laughs) learning to to give appreciation because that's something we all thrive on correct yeah, and but also just a level of acknowledgement. Mm. There's, there's so many simple hacks that you can do. So, for example, one that I really like is, um, and this this goes back to the early days of, oh, and I don't want to centre myself too much in some of these stories, but just my history. So it's, it's just it's helpful to understand where does my lived experience come from. That where I didn't read this in a book, it's what I did, and and it worked. And I, so I'll share it with you. But and I, and you know this, and I've shared it with we share it on our courses. But let's say, for example. Aldi Foods was the was opened in Australia in 1999 in April, and uh, I was one of the very early team members there. And as we were hiring people, the sort of head office was filling up, if you like, and the directors had offices down the side, and the main sort of thoroughfare area was all very open plan. So you'd imagine a building about 80 meters long by 30 meters wide, 
had about 100 people in the end in the open plan area, and there were six directors that kind of ran the various arms of the business, property, operations, warehouse, purchasing, like just standard supermarket stuff. And so I was the property guy, right? So, I, but my, so my office was the first office because I was in and out of the building all the time because I was out on construction sites and visiting new prospective sites. But I used, when I would arrive in the morning, I would spend 10 or 15 minutes just walking all the way through, zigzagging my way through the open plan area. And obviously not everyone because it was just would have been weird because they're on the phone or they were busy or they're in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> but I would get eye contact with every single person that I could. I would say hello, little thumbs up great to see you. How are you? And some people I developed a closer connection. I knew that their kids were finishing school or whatever. And so just a little chat and I'd get right to the very end. And then we had a policy at Aldi where we would have to shake hands with every director. Now, all directors had to shake hands with every other director when they entered the building, when they left the building for the day. That was a policy. (laughs) Pretty intense, right? So you couldn't close your door at Aldi. And if it was closed, you weren't allowed to knock unless the building was burning down because it was serious, the door was closed. So you pretty much guarantee that if everyone, if anyone was in pretty much any meeting, their door would be open and you could just walk down and, and uh, shake hands. They'd stand up, big smile, shake hands. And so this cultural thing. But when I left, there was this, I got one of those cards that sort of thank you cards and farewell type things. And in it, all these people had written these tiny, tiny little paragraphs saying, so, you know, I really miss you, Paul. I left because I just wanted to go and do my own thing. But the most common comment was, you made me feel so seen or acknowledged mm, when value. you would say hello to me. Mm. And I'd go, you know, really? Is, yeah, simple me, as that. Oh, and we talk about building resilience around people. We talk within our teams and we talk about, and there's this aspect of, I'm going to quote some work from Dr. Chris Stevens around pro-sociality and some more, even more research around this pro-sociality, which is where if you help someone walk across the road, and you'll feel good about yourself, right? It's someone who, someone who needs assistance to cross the road, right? It's a really simple example. So not only will you feel good, they'll feel good. The pro-social aspect is you feel good. But also, if you tell me that story and I can visualize that story, I feel good too. So it's, it's it almost speaks this collective resilience that can build up mm-hmm. as people are helping other people. And so I felt good saying hello to everybody. They felt good. But how many people walk into a veterinary hospital and go straight to, they say hello to the people they happen to bump into, right? What about those people out the back? What about those younger people who are cleaning cages and making sure that there's no infection spread for overnight patients? Who's going and saying hello to them? And proper eye contact, say, hey, mate, how are you going? Good to see you. Have a great day, whatever. And when you leave at the end of, the day, go and find people and say goodbye to them. Yeah, there is that. some. I think Moravian did the research around the f- the. You know, this is to do with successful relationships, right? But five, five to one is the ratio of some form of acknowledgement before you can give me any developmental or negative feedback. So right. I need a hello. I need a kiss goodbye in the morning. I need a you know, quick text during the day. How's your day going? I need a hi, honey, when I walk in the door or vice versa. And um, would you like a glass of wine? Okay, if we take one thing out of this podcast, that is leadership. Walking in and actually, and it is like gratitude, isn't it? Affirmation, it's like, I'm grateful that you're here because I couldn't be doing this 
by myself. We're a team. Yeah. And even down, as you said, to that that student that's doing the washing down the back, pushing the mop around, we can't do this job if we don't do it as a team. And if there's no acknowledgement, no team. Yeah, I love the All Blacks. The All Blacks have this philosophy, oh, yeah. this servant philosophy. Of they, you might be an All Black, right, but you're going to clean your own change room. Yes, yes. I love that. That's, yeah. just, that's very military. I know the military sort of has this, maybe it's people have a perception of the military. It's very hierarchical. I remember being on a live fire exercise once and I was running along and it's pretty intense. You can't hear anything. It's very loud, live fire exercises. And one group runs in front of another group. So you imagine 30 people, all quite structured, but moving forward towards some sort of enemy objective, pretend, but it's fire, the real bullets. And I remember feeling this incredible sense of overwhelm. I'd never done it before. I was like 23 and I ran and I dived into a pit, sorry, into a, like an embankment. And my signaler was running next to me because the signaler runs with you. He carries the radio. <laughs> Thank goodness, because it's quite heavy. And they run with you and they've got this like telephone thing, the old-fashioned telephone, and they jam it in your ear when you hit the deck because you need to be able to hear various things. And uh, and he, I remember he didn't jam the phone in my ear. He put his hand on my shoulder and I turned and looked at him and I must have been a complete wreck, right? I was I was having an anxiety attack, I think, is probably the best way to characterise it. And he said to me, boss, calm down. Now, I don't think those words have ever helped anyone. My kids tell me that all the time. Dad, don't tell me to calm down. Right? Do your so Christ's breathing. Come yeah. on. <laughs> but so it wasn't what he said. That probably annoyed, didn't annoy me, but it was his touch. It was so powerful. And we can't go touching people, but just we can to a certain extent and we can certainly make really good contact with people with our eyes not weirdly but just and there's ways we can do those things to really build connection and the more we do that it it, it has this impact on our sympathetic nervous system it sort of dampens that sympathetic nervous system that high heart rate high cortisol levels building you can bring calmness to a room just simply by the way you stand or the way you look or the way you breathe and smile oh look I have one of those sort of resting, angry faces. <laughs> That's the, not true. <laughs> no, I think I do. And the soldiers would come to me and they'd go, what's wrong with you, boss? And I'd say, nothing. Why? And they'd say, well, you just look angry. And I'd say, well, mate, aren't you busy? Can you come find something to do? And But it was, you know, self-awareness. But I had one vet client down in Melbourne once who was having some problems and he asked me to come down and work with his team. So I, and he said to me, Paul, what's going on with these people? Why do they get so upset with me all the time? And they're just like, they're so nervous of me. And so I interviewed them and I said, so what is it about this guy? And they said, he sits and does his histories and he's got these glasses that he puts at the end of his nose. And when he's looking at his computer screen, he lifts his head and he looks down through some bifocal thing. And then when he turns and looks, when we knock on the door, he looks through over the top of his glasses. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm, going, and I'm going, yes. And the problem is, and they said, oh, he just looks so angry. Oh, also, he's just squinting because yeah. he can't see you. Yeah, perceived. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. The big journey here is the military through to building the Lincoln Institute. And the Lincoln Institute, obviously, you've got some partners that are helping you create this model of leadership or accessible leadership or growing leaders in the veterinary industry. And this is throughout Australasia, is that right? Look, it's a bit wider than that now, Yeah, but, but largely Australia and New Zealand, yes. And through that leadership, you formed a community. 
of people that can connect with each other and develop. We're starting to remove those obstacles to some of the other very important pillars of veterinary professional well-being, which is well, you know, salaries and wages, and looking at like building emotional intelligence, and also looking at mental health and talking about those things in a group, which is lovely because we haven't been very collegial. I think, in the past. So what are the obstacles moving forward? We know that we're in a veterinary shortage, like it's all about doomsday out there for the veterinary profession. What's next and what obstacles do we need to actually remove to get there? Oh, look, it's a... Big topic. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really complex issue. And I feel like it is important to understand the difference between complex and complicated because if we think about the work of Keegan around, around adaptive leadership, handling issues that are complex is probably the best way to describe the difference between the two is complicated things are hard but there's a solid line between the problem and the solution just need to do a bit more diagnosis i need to maybe cut this animal open have a little bit more of a feel around yep i've got this i know how to solve this and off we go so it's not saying that complicated things aren't hard they can be incredibly hard complex issues there is not such a clear path to the solution Mm. and i think there is definitely a veterinary shortage out there but it's the solution is multifaceted correct and when we think about the classic example between complicated and complex is if i gave you pieces of a ferrari and put them in a big nice clean shed and you built the right team including probably a couple of ferrari mechanics you could build a ferrari right no problem hard but and you wouldn't have a clue, but someone would, and you can just, but complex is the Amazon and the issues associated with the environment. And this is when we apply a complicated process to solving a complex issue, it fails. Now, some of the things you've got to do to solve complex issues is you have to, you have to take a step back and you have to go to the balcony. Now that's not waiving your obligations as a leader to solving things, it's acknowledging the fact that this is a big dance floor, right? This is huge. And there's so much going on and so many different facets to this and so many different really well thought through opinions. I think one of the things that that would be really helpful if I could just get into the nitty gritty a little bit would be for the veterinary industry to do something like what the military do and what the legal profession do. So my wife's a lawyer, so I understand both those two things quite well. We have a regimental officers basic course. So when I graduate from my my veterinary school equivalent in officer training, I have to go and do a regimental officers basic course. So for an infantry, it's a couple of months. For intelligence, it's six months. For artillery or armoured corps, it's five months. So I've got to go and do my specialist training. For a lawyer, once they graduate from law school, they then go into this college and that's where they learn the art of writing an affidavit and drafting documents and how to speak to a client and all of those things. And so if we take that and then apply that to your veterinary practice, Megan, what could we take, what learning could we take from that Mm. as one little facet of what is a really complex problem? One little facet we could do is to have a better training, structured training regime for the veterinarians, for example, and I'm just going to pick on the veterinarians initially. Yeah, because our attrition rate is horrible. So, well, yeah. yeah, we're doing something wrong. And that, as you said, just start with the seedlings. Yeah. You know, and how then, do we look then, after our seedlings? Yeah. And then if you break that 
down into, okay, so what could we do for a veterinarian to train them up and get them to a point where, okay, so they've done the science. And according to the conversations I'm having with people, they're coming out with more knowledge than anyone's ever come out with before. Like they're just packed they're, mm. they're, they're, to maintain, for example, in Australia, to maintain, I'm sure New Zealand's the same, to maintain US accreditation. It's huge. So the curriculum is enormous. There is limited time to do any of that sort of stuff that a lawyer would do or an army officer would do in terms of what's it like when you actually step foot into one of these places and actually start applying a lot of these much broader, high-level high skills. There's very little time for that. And I said we're operating more broadly now at Lincoln. Lincoln now is in 25 countries, five languages, and it's how to build up competency in the consult room. Yeah. I'm not going to be so crass as to promote it on this if people, they can contact you, I'm sure, if they want to know more about it. But it's 52 weeks, 52 videos. Now, we've been on a trial with Royal Cannon globally. And that's where the 25 countries come from. We don't have 20 reached that many countries, but Royal Cannon do. And Royal Cannon have taken that and they've gone into uh, veterinary hospitals, like a couple in Germany and a couple in Spain, been translated into five languages to enable this process to take place. And the feedback that we're getting is tremendous. So people for the first time are understanding that it's about how to advocate for a patient and not worry about the money. If I could draw on this podcast, I would draw a column with $100 in it, right? So that's the total revenue. And then I would say that the average practice in Australia is doing around about 7% profit. So $7 is profit and $93 is the cost to deliver the service. If I fail to charge for something, not blatantly discount, not blatantly give the person some money back or cut the price, leave the price the same, but just I don't include everything. I forget to charge an injection fee or whatever, right? So I leave stuff off. If I'm only making, let's say, 10% profit because it's easier and I leave $5 off that bill, I've just given away half the profit of the practice. Yeah, I know. It's outstanding. Now, that means, so how does that translate? So now I'm going to put my business hat on. That translates into that practice having to do twice as much work in a time when everybody's already under the pump. Yeah. And now we have, and it's, who are the worst at this? Probably the owners of the practice, right? <laughs> Hands up. Yeah, that's yeah, me. Like, <laughs> now, if you want to do that because they're a pensioner or whatever, I get that, then do that. But you've got to be structured in such a way that you can do that. But if you're arguing the toss around, mm. or if you're undercharging for your time, for example, because you're not valuing your time properly, then... You know, you're not going to be able to do the nice things for people that you want to do for nice people. Like, I'm not saying you don't do those things. If there's a pensioner walks in, halve the bill if you want to. But you can do that because you're charging appropriately for everybody else. It's like that bell curve theory. My veterinary hospital charges $135 for a 30-minute consult. Do you think I care about 20 bucks or 40 bucks when the animal's going there once a year because they do a good job? The value proposition works for me. And this practice is profitable, thank goodness, because so they can pay their people. So to get back to your question around attrition, Megan, it's not only how we're helping people in the industry to retain what we've got, how we're making it the sort of environment that people want to come and work in, there's got to be some work done around salaries. But it doesn't. it's not a free ride, right? If you want to work on salaries, you've got to work on charging appropriately. And some people are not cut out for that. And I see it as an outsider looking in, people who either aren't trained 
So they don't have the skill to be able to have the conversation with the client around the dental treatment that needs to happen. Or they just, a love of animals is not enough. And a 99 out of 100 HS high school certificate result is not enough. We could then talk about a whole other range of things, like reducing the academic threshold to get into veterinary science. And let's get some more people in there who okay, they may not be the smartest person on the planet. I'm not saying, I hope this isn't coming across as me saying anything negative about the people who are coming through because you've got the brightest of the brightest coming through, but some of those brightest of the brightest don't have the capability or the competencies to be able to go and have those conversations. And, of course, that, I think that's part of the attrition as well. And I think you're right. Like I've heard it called a wicked problem. So the complex problems are wicked, and that's exactly how it feels. And we need everybody on your dance floor. You know, when I'm talking to you, I drifted off to Strictly Ballroom, my actual favourite <laughs> Australian movie. And I was like, yes, yes, we're on the dance floor. And I think you're right. Like that whole... That's one thing we could do, especially with Lincoln out there. And I'm so happy to hear that you're actually doing it. And we're looking at it in New Zealand, as far as our new grads are concerned, is to bring that sort of high level training and competency into that consult room as early as we possibly can, because we're all very empathetic and compassionate. You know, we can't be a sustainable ongoing profession. And that's, you know, world, you won't even have us unless we actually start to to work out this problem as far as charging appropriately for what we actually do. And on the flip side, the Vet Thrive Collective is basically talking about, and the program is talking about making those people resilient and actually physically and mentally and emotionally resilient so that they can continue to do that job. And we've mm-hmm. got our veterinary nurses now consulting and really actually growing that leadership journey. So we're such such a great topic to be talking about, Paul, and thank you for coming on today to spread the good word about how leadership, um, you know, I, I think you absorb it, but it's actually much a faster journey if you actually bit are coached, <laughs> I've found, and, you know, you've done a fantastic job coaching my team. We're so engaged and we've loved every minute of the journey. Oh, completely, and, and people, to hold, people got to hold you accountable. You can only go so far on your own. Yeah. That's right. And I think that's a key key take home. You don't know what you don't know, right? We talk about that blind spot, but we haven't got time to talk about that today. And that's what coaches do. They open those blind spots up and then they lead you to a place where, you know, you can lead other people. So thanks, Paul. We really appreciate that uh, the time that you've given to make change in this veterinary profession. Oh, good on you, Megan. I, I love what you're doing. It's great. You have been listening to the Vet Thrive Collective Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest in veterinary professional well-being across the globe, join the conversation by following Vet Thrive on LinkedIn. Subscribe to the Vet Thrive Collective podcast at Apple Podcasts and Spotify.